kindergarten to second grade to be dismissed to children's church if they wish. And kids can find children's church over here by the piano. Would the rest of you open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, verse 22. Luke chapter 8. We're studying verses 22 through the end of the chapter. If you're using a pew Bible and you're a little rusty on where Luke is, uh, it's on page 1024. Luke chapter 8. And we're going to be on page 1024, verse 22. going to do something a little different today. Uh, as we've been studying through Luke over the past couple months, we've studied a story, or a, a, I might call it a panel at a time, one story and then another story. But today we're going to accelerate the pace a bit, and we're actually going to study four stories. We're going to see if this can be done. Uh, from verses 22 all the way to the end of the chapter, at verse 56, we have four different stories. And that's one of the great things about the Bible. You can look at one word of the Bible, or you can look at a sentence, or a verse, or a paragraph, or you can pan back to a chapter or a whole book, and there's, there's incredible things from God's Word. No matter what level of magnification you study God's Word, you can hear God's voice speaking. And so it's this incredible book. It's like I compared it to a fractal. For those of you who are computer people, you know, this fractals, no matter how close you get to it, you see patterns of complexity and organization. And that's how it is. Whether you look close at the Bible or far away at the whole thing, God's Word is so alive and it speaks to us. So today we're going to back up a little bit. And we're going to look at four stories together. Because these four stories are held together by a common theme. And that theme is this. Here's what we're going to be studying. The power of Jesus over, well, everything that nothing is impossible for God. And we're going to see four uh, situations in which Jesus is confronted by something that's seemingly hopeless and impossible. Something that cannot be overcome from our human perspective. And Jesus in His authority and power overcomes again and again and again and a fourth time. So that's what this is about. And the first thing Jesus overcomes is an impossibly hopeless storm. We see Jesus' power over the forces of nature. So if you look at verse 22, it says, One day Jesus said to his disciples, Let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. And just for historical frame of reference, they're at the Sea of Galilee, which you know is in northern Israel, and it's a sort of a long, skinny lake that's about 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. And they're going from the northwest corner in Galilee. They're going to sail down to the southeast corner in the region of the Gerasenes, as we'll see. Uh, so they're going on this lake, and that's when the problem starts. Verse 20, uh, two, 23. It says, As they sailed, he, Jesus, fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake, so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. Now, the Sea of Galilee is kind of famous for its sudden, violent storms. Uh, it's kind of like weather in New England. You know, if you don't like the weather, just wait an hour, and you'll, it'll be different. That's how it was in the Sea of Galilee. It could be one way one minute, and an hour later it could be something completely different. Uh, the Sea of Galilee actually sits below sea level, and there are high mountains and mesas and ridges around it. So cold air from up above in the highlands can come rushing down and mix with the warm air over the water very quickly. And so you can really go from a nice calm day to a violent storm in the lake, and this was sort of common. But apparently this was a, a particularly fierce storm, a very potent squall. 
Because look at, uh, as it says there, they're in danger of being swamped. And look at verse 24. The disciples went out and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. And you know it's bad. Because remember, four of the disciples are professional fishermen. Right? There's Peter, his brother Andrew was a professional fisherman, and then their two buddies, James and John. So these weren't, you know, some land lover guys who you know, worked in an office in Jerusalem or something. These were guys who lived on the lake. In fact, not just any lake. This is the lake they grew up on. They'd seen storms. They'd been out at sea in the lake during very uh, turbulent conditions. And they'd made it back. They knew what a bad storm was. And so when even the old salts are crying out, we're going to die, you know this is a hopeless storm. This is, this is bad. This is, the boat is being swamped. You can see the men trying to keep it balanced as the, the swells crest and break and the boat is being filled up and the guys are you know, bailing with whatever they can get their hands on, bailing with their robes, bailing with whatever they have on hand, trying to get the water out. And finally they give up and they decide to wake up Jesus, and, which I think is just kind of interesting. First that he's sleeping, but then they have to wake him up. Like, I don't know, you only drown once in your life, so... Jesus, you might as well be awake for it because it's kind of a once-in-a-lifetime thing. I don't know what the logic was, but they wake him up. Master, Master, we're going to drown. A hopeless situation. But as we said, nothing is impossible for God. And Christ is sovereign, even over nature. Look at verse 24, the second half of it. It says, He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Just like a parent would you know, scold a preschooler or a master would bark an order to a dog and the dog comes and heals at the master. So Christ speaks and nature obeys. Just as God spoke and the universe came into existence, so God can speak again and the universe that he created does what he says because he is the Lord of the creation and the Lord of nature. <clears throat> He's sovereign over everything. Even nature must obey Christ. There's a great story about Hudson Taylor, who's a missionary to China, one of the first missionaries there. And uh, in the mid-19th century, he set sail for China. Uh, and on his way there, uh, around the island of Papua New Guinea, the ship was becalmed at sea. Uh, and there was a pretty fierce current there going between Malaysia and uh, I guess it's called Sumatra, but now I think we call it Papua New Guinea. And so as the ship was sailing through those straits, strong currents were pulling it toward Papua New Guinea and toward some shoals that were there. And they couldn't do anything. The sailors got out in their long boats and tied ropes to the ship and were trying to row the ship out of the current, and nothing worked. And so apparently, as the story goes, the captain came down and saw Hudson Taylor and told him the situation. And Taylor said, well, what am I supposed to do? I'm not a sailor. And he said, well, you're a man of God. We thought maybe you could pray. <laughs> Because we need some wind. He said, okay, I'll pray. And they, as the story goes, he apparently turned to the captain and said, but first you must do something for me. You must put, down the sa- put up the sails. And the captain said, well, you know, people are going to think I'm crazy. You know, the sailors. He goes, it doesn't matter. You have to put the sails up and get ready. Because if God's going to send the wind, then you have to be ready for it. And so finally he did it. And Hudson Taylor got on his knees and got a couple other believers with him. And they just started praying for God to move and about 45 minutes later, knock on the door. Mr. Taylor, you can stop praying now. We have more wind than we know what to do with. And God saved the ship and it blew it away. God can make the wind stop. God can make the wind start. 
God can make the rain come. God can withhold the rain. He's sovereign over all of the, the weather that we so love to watch here in New England. It's under his control. He's sovereign in everything that happens in it. And yet I'm like the disciples. I don't believe. I'm like the captain on the ship. I don't believe. I freak out when I see the wind and the waves. And so Jesus has to rebuke the disciples. He rebukes the storm, then he rebukes the disciples. Look at verse 25. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. Did it get washed overboard? Did you leave it back on land? Did you forget it? Where's your faith? And in fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. That's the question. Who is this? Who's the only person in the Bible who can give orders to nature? Who is this? In verse 26, they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. So here's the second story now. Jesus has shown his sovereignty over nature. Now he's going to show his sovereignty over another kind of storm, a spiritual storm, and it's over the forces of darkness. And the Gerasenes is a region to the southeastern corner, just totally catty corner across the lake from Capernaum, where Jesus sailed from. And uh, the, the Gerasenes, what's significant about this area is that it's a Gentile area. So it's the first time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus, in his ministry, goes to be among uh, the Gentile people. And so he lands there, and another storm erupts on Christ. Look at verse 27. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and been driven by the demon into solitary places. So we looked at a hopeless, impossible storm. And I would uh, suggest this is a hopeless, impossibly lost person in darkness. This is a person whose spiritual condition is so abysmal that people have written him off and just let him run around. He's, he's demon-possessed, so he has powerful forces of darkness dwelling within him. This isn't just mental illness. This is truly something spiritual that's taken place, and this is, things are real. And there's demons inside of him. He hasn't lived in town for a long time. In fact, we don't even know who he is. He's just called a man with a demon who lived in the town. That's how sort of nondescript he's become. He's not even a person anymore. He's more like a beast. He runs around naked. He screams. He shouts. He lives in the tombs like a ghoul. He's more of a monster than a man. This is like something out of, I don't know, an R-rated horror flick is what it feels like to me. It's like a monster movie. And there's this crazy guy running around, and they tried to take care of him in town. They put him in chains, they put guards around him, because, hey, there's nothing else we can do for this raving wild guy. But, but the forces of darkness in him were so strong that they empowered him to break the chains and overcome his guards, and he runs off into the wilderness again. Uh, Mark, in his Gospel, tells us that this man would cry out day and night and cut himself with stones. And Matthew tells us that people were afraid to go that way because they knew that the monster was loose in the hills. And so if ever there was a hopeless person, I would suggest it's this guy. And not only did he have a demon, look at verse 30. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, 
he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And a Roman legion was anywhere from 4,800 to 5,000 or so soldiers. A typical Roman legion. It kind of varied over time. But uh, wow, that, you know, if that's anywhere near right, that's a lot. It's a lot of spirits. It's like an army of devils inside this person. If ever there was a man in a hopeless spiritual condition, it would be this guy. If ever there was a guy in the ministry that I would kind of write off and say, you know what, I don't think I can help you. <laughs> It'd be this guy. If ever there was a person, I was going to say, this guy is lost. I mean, he's as good as done. He is so far in Satan's grasp. He's so far under the powers of hell. It's as if he's in hell already. He's so gone. He's not even a person. Can't even talk to him. His personality has been submerged underneath the diabolical forces. So forget about this guy. Surely this is a hopeless condition. Who could reach this man? But Christ is here. And notice, even as Jesus steps ashore, the demons, all of them, surrender to Christ's power. Look back at verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet. That's homage and submission. Shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. So he's groveling. The powers of darkness, even a legion of them, they cower and they whimper and they grovel before the authority of Jesus. Jesus is sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over the forces of darkness. And all the powers of hell, if they were gathered together in one place and arrayed in army ranks and with Satan at the head on a black horse, in the presence of Christ, they're like dust because He is the Lord. And so these, these demons grovel before Him. Verse 31, they begged Him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss, the place of judgment and destruction. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. Remember, this is Gentile territory. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them. And He gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. must have been quite a sight. When those tending the pigs saw what happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. They were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got in the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus, interesting, had done for him. And so here we have the power of Christ, even over darkness. Here was a man full of demons, now a man free from demons. A man who was naked, now a man clothed. A man who was out of control running around, and now he sits calmly at Jesus' feet. A man who was out of his mind, now he's in his right mind. A man who was driven out into the wilderness, and now sent by God back into the city to tell what Christ had done. In a word, Christ has reversed the entire situation. His power is so great. This utterly hopeless, lost person is now not just cured and healed, but commissioned by Christ. In fact, here we have the first missionary to the Gentiles. This, is, I think, is prefiguring and anticipating the gospel, the book of Acts, that the church is going to go even to the Gentiles. And so here's this Gentile missionary going off 
to reach the people in his town, preparing the way for uh, the church. <clears throat> Christ is sovereign, even over the forces of darkness. Do you know someone who you've just kind of written off? Because they are so far gone. Do you know someone who you think is so plunged in darkness, Satan has his talons so deep in this person's life that you give up praying for them quite a while ago? Because frankly, there's really no hope. They're so far gone. Nothing could reach this person. Not after what they've done and the things they've said. And we write people off and we stop praying for them and we say, well, you know, that one, forget it. It's not worth the time. Christ can reach anyone and we need to keep praying for people, especially those who seem hopeless because God may be waiting to do the greatest miracle yet that we've seen by reaching that one person. And what about this area? We live here in New England and we say, oh, this is spiritually rocky soil. Oh, it's cold. It's hard here. Well, it turns out it actually is. I, uh, I have a pastor friend of mine who was telling me about a study that he heard about just done last year by George Barna. Uh, Barna is this guy who studies Christianity and religion. And he did a study on evangelicals and their presence around the country. And, and he defined evangelicals a certain way. You know, he had like eight characteristics. It was people who believed that the Bible was the inspired Word of God. And, you know, people who believed Jesus really was the Savior. He was really crucified and buried and raised for our sins. And people who believed that you have to be born again. And, you know, so they had all these lists of things that are kind of typical evangelical things. And he did a survey around the country. And apparently, uh, this is what my pastor friend is telling me this, the survey concluded that the area from Rhode Island up through southeast Massachusetts to Boston is the least evangelical area in the United States. <laughs> it's like 1% minus. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? I told someone that, and they said, well, Jeremy, you're not doing a good job, apparently. <laughs> so, I didn't know that was my job, to reach the whole place. Uh, yeah, I look at it the other way. I, I feel like, man, we're on the front lines. I don't know, the kind of the adrenaline macho side of me is like, yeah, ya? we're here. <laughs> we're at the tip of the spear, man. We're, you, know, I, you know, I'm sure they need Jesus down in the Bible Belt. I'm, everyone needs Jesus. But, you know, they've got churches and 20 FM Christian stations, and they've got big Christian bookstores. we got nothing, and we like it that way because <laughs> we're in New England. And, uh, you know, but I, really, I, I feel like we're in the trench. We're right at the Battle of the Bulge, dropped behind enemy lines, trying to hold back the, the advance. We are, we're at Normandy. We're at Omaha Beach. We're f fighting the, the battle right here. And, and if Christ can have a breakthrough here, and if revival can come here, then I just feel like it's going to spread. It, it, it'll be all over for America. Christ will be proclaimed again. Because this is the place where it's not happening. And so, oh, I thank God that I'm here for that reason. That we can pray believing that Jesus is more powerful than the forces of darkness. And so we need to keep praying for revival, keep evangelizing, keep praying for our neighbors. We've got to walk through our neighborhoods, down our streets, praying for people. We've got to pray through all of our friends, just asking God to let them know Christ's love and His presence, the Gospel message. Because Jesus is greater than the storm, He's greater than the forces of darkness. And in the next story, he's greater than disease and sickness. Look at verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him. So one crowd kicked him out, but this crowd welcomes him. 
for they were all expecting him. He's apparently back now in Capernaum, or Galilee at least. And then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet. So there's another man falling at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. So here we have a tragic, heartbreaking story of a 12-year-old girl who is dying of some ailment. We don't know what it is, but it's taking her life, and they can't do anything for her. And it's sad because she's 12. She's on the very cusp of womanhood. Uh, Around age 12 or 13 in this culture, you're about ready to be married. You could start a life as an adult. It's different from our culture. So really, this was was like a blossom. It was about to bloom, but the frost is threatening to nip it in the bud so that she can't bloom and and become a mature adult and and live an adult life. She's about to be snuffed out right there, 12 years old. But what's interesting is that's not the story of Jesus overcoming disease. There's another story embedded within this story, and we look at that one, then we get back to the 12-year-old girl. First, or next, there's a story about a woman who's been sick for 12 years. Look at the second half of verse 42. It says, as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. So you need to think of like a rock concert. You know, down in the front of the concert, where it's just kind of an open pit area, and there's no real seating. People are just crushed into the concert, and they're all kind of jumping together as one big mass, and people are fighting to get up to the front of the concert so they can lay up on the stage. You know, that's what you got to imagine, this crushing mosh pit of people all smushing together, and Jesus is trying to work his way to get to Jairus' daughter, but people want to touch him, people want to talk to him, people are screaming, he's become so well-known and famous. Verse 43, And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. So here's this poor woman with a chronic bleeding condition, presumably it's some dysfunction with her menstrual cycle, um, very difficult, difficult physically. Imagine the anemia and just the tiredness that this would have brought on year after year. Uh, it says no one could help her. She's been to all the doctors. We know from the Gospel of Mark that uh, she uh, had used up all her money, seeing all the best specialists. So she's been into Boston, and she's gone you know, to the experimental drug programs, and she, her HMO won't pay for anything anymore. And she's mortgaged her house so that she could pursue alternative medicines because that's all she had left and that didn't work. So she's been down pretty much every road possibility that anyone can try. Twelve years later, she's broke, still sick, nothing can fix her. A hopeless physical condition. But it's not only a physical condition. You have to also understand that in, uh, under Old Testament law and under, in Jewish culture, she would have also been socially and religiously ostracized. Because under Jewish law, you would be ceremonially unclean as long as you were bleeding or had some skin condition. There's a whole bunch of laws. You can read about them in Leviticus. It's fascinating. And uh, there's all these weird skin conditions you can have. And if you have them, you're sort of socially ostracized. You're unclean, ceremonially speaking. Not sinning, but you're ceremonially unclean. And so this woman, for the past 12 years, has been ceremonially unclean. So not only physically ill, but socially and religiously put at the periphery of society, stigmatized and ostracized. A hopeless situation. As hopeless as the storm, as hopeless as the demon-possessed guy, and now this hopeless physical condition. But this woman, unlike the disciples, this woman has great faith. By God's grace, she believes that Jesus can do something. She has faith enough that she decides to come back into the society. She's in there in the crowds, risking exposure 
and ridicule and public um, sanction against her by breaking those laws and coming into society. And she has faith enough to find Jesus. So here she is. She's pressing through the crowds like the concert. And she's wriggling her way through and trying not to be seen so no one knows who she is. And she's finally getting close to Jesus and she's sneaking up behind him and she can't quite get to him. There's some people in front of her and she kind of wiggles her arm through and just enough to touch him. Just enough. It says, verse 44, she came up behind him and touched edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped who touched me Jesus asked when they all denied it Peter said "Uh, master the people are crowding and pressing against you (laughs) what do you mean who touched you Uh, everybody like what who touched me (laughs) everybody's been touching you but Jesus said someone touched me I know the power has gone out from me. I, I, that verse is so fascinating. Verse 47. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling, and here's another one, fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. So Jesus is, has authority even over disease and brokenness and illness. And think about the faith of this woman. Not only the faith to come back into society as a pariah, and not only the faith to reach out and touch Jesus boldly, but then the faith to stand up before people and tell her story. And and I think that's part of the healing. She wasn't really healed until even that moment. Because, yes, she'd been physically healed, but by speaking to Christ in front of everyone, she's now socially and religiously healed. She's experienced what, what they call in the Old Testament shalom, which means wholeness completeness, peace, a wholeness over her whole person, not just her body, but her soul and her spirit in a social and religious sense. She's restored completely. And so just as Jesus had changed the storm and the demon-possessed man, now the woman, because Christ is Lord. He has authority over these things. People, I think we need to pray more fervently for God to heal people. I don't think we pray enough for that or pray the right way for that in the church. You know, when we, we do pray from time to time for God to heal people, and it's always kind of this watered-down sort of thing. It's like, it's like, Lord, here's brother so-and-so, and you know he's got this condition. and So, Lord, let your will be done, whatever you want to do. And uh, we, we'd sure appreciate it if he was better. But, you know, we understand. So, amen. And <laughs> it's like, we've got to pray. And we've got to say, God, heal this brother. Heal them. And we need to keep praying. We need to pray with the same kind of tenacity as that woman fought through the crowds. We don't pray like that. We've got to pray like, heal them, God. Heal them. And keep praying. And then trust God to do what He wants. I am not advocating any kind of uh, sort of um, faith healing thing where if you just have enough faith, you'll get your miracle. And sometimes you don't get a miracle. Sometimes you're not healed. Or sometimes you're told to wait. And sometimes God just gives you the strength to keep going. That's up to God. The healing part is up to God. So this is not a, if you just believe, you will receive X. It's not a formula like that. But I'll tell you, I think we could sure learn to play, pray more with more faith, more believing, more actually trusting that God can do something instead of our sort of watered-down, wimpy prayers. We've got to pray with tenacity for God to heal. And as uh, Clement of Alexandria, the great uh, early church father, said, faith is voluntary anticipation. 
I like that. Voluntary anticipation. I am going to voluntarily choose to anticipate that God can do something. And we need to pray for one another to be healed. You know, God not only can heal our physical bodies, He can heal our hearts. He can restore, as it says in Joel, the years that the locusts have eaten. Christ can reach into wounds that are so deep and so secret that we aren't even really aware of them because we sort of push them out of our minds. Things that happened when we were kids. Some of us grew up in alcoholic families. Some of us were hit. Some of us were told all our lives that we were nothing, that we were worthless. Some of us were abused. You know, some of us have been divorced. It, we have these scars in our lives, and you know, Christ can heal all those things. I, I've seen it. He can reach into souls and bring restoration and bring a, a new wholeness, a new sense of shalom. But we have to reach out. We have to pray. We have to push. We've got to pray for each other. That also means that in the church, we have to be willing to share that with each other. And we can't keep this, you know, how are you doing? I'm fine. Great. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. It's great. We're all fine. You know, we've got to be willing to say, honestly, you want to know? Uh, let me tell you. And then, and then when someone tells us, we need to put our hands on each other and say, can I just pray for you? And just put our hands on each other's shoulders and pray and love each other. And, and let the healing power of Christ flow through His church. The body of Christ is still on earth, you know. His hands are still on planet earth. That's our hands. And, uh, and you don't have to be a charismatic to believe this. <laughs> you just have to pray and ask God to do things and believe that God can if God so chooses. We just have to pray believing that God is a great physician. He can heal our bodies. He can heal our souls. He's so great... He commands the storm. He's so great, He commands the forces of darkness. He gives orders to diseases and they obey. And is even sovereign over death. Verse 50. Hearing this, Jesus... Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead. He said... Don't bother the teacher anymore. What a blunt statement. There it is. Your daughter's dead. I mean, how was Jairus dealing with this? I'm trying to imagine as a father, trying to think of the story. All this hope. Maybe I can get Jesus there on time, but no, he hasn't made it on time. The crowds were too thick. The woman with the other problem, well, she's took up too much time. And so Jesus didn't get there. And now Jairus hears, your daughter's dead. And uh, so let's not bother Jesus. Hey, Jesus, we appreciate it. Thank you. We know you intended well, but we don't want to take up more of your time because she's dead now, and dead is dead. And there's, there's nothing more hopeless than death. You thought the other stuff was hopeless. Death is the most hopeless thing because, you know, when someone's dead, they're dead, and that's it. I mean, so why bother him? There's, there's no more point in this. Jesus, maybe you should hurry up and help some other people before they die. I, keep moving, Jesus. Do the things that you can do. Don't deal with things you can't do. And I love what Jesus says. Notice that he says this to Jairus, not to the messenger. Verse 50. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, because here's the one who needed to hear it. Don't be afraid. Just believe. And she will be healed. And I think that, that little sentence there, don't be afraid, just believe, is the application for the reader of these four stories. 
This is what we are supposed to do in response to what we've been studying this morning. Don't be afraid. Just believe. We all come to these seemingly impossible situations, these brick walls, these obelisks that rise up in front of us and we can't see any way over it, around it, under it, through it. What are we going to do? And we need to realize those moments are crossroads where we have a choice. Will we be afraid and descend into fear and ulcers and anxiety and sleepless nights and all that stuff? Or will we trust Jesus through it and, and trust that He is sovereign and trust that He can do something and ask for it and believe? Don't be afraid. Just believe. You know, let me ask you, what is the thing you brought in here this morning with you that's weighing you down, that has you freaked out? Maybe it's a family thing, a, a marriage thing, money, whatever. What is it that's got you stressed out? Children, parents, what is it? Uh, maybe it's yourself. Maybe you look at yourself and say, I'm so hopelessly stuck in this sin or these destructive patterns or these thoughts and I, I could never be changed. I'm like the guy out in the wilderness. I'm out there somewhere. And Jesus is saying to you and to me very directly, don't be afraid. Just believe. Because every seemingly impossible situation is actually an opportunity for growth and for God's glory to be manifested. We see these up things as sort of brick walls in our, our journey and they're not. They're There are chances to go up to a new level with Christ and to see Him work in profound ways that we haven't experienced as we learn to trust Him. Because the greatest work that God wants to do, ultimately, is to make us us people of faith. That's the great work He wants to do. Even more important than my health is my character. Even more important than my disease is my faith and my soul. And that's what He's trying to develop. Don't be afraid, just believe. So, verse 51, when he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. And meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. That's how they, that's how they grieved back then. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned to her, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. They always do that. When someone raises from the dead in the Bible, they have to eat. I don't... <laughs> Isn't that true? I don't know. It's just little things like that just stick out to me. I mean, I like it. That's cool. Uh, so there's a feast in heaven, I suppose. You know, whatever. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Jesus is even sovereign over death. He can raise the dead... And even when I die in the dust someday and there's a funeral for me, I know that I'm just, in Christ, in Christ, I'm just asleep. In the sense that someday I will be raised. So for a Christian, death isn't even really death. It's just kind of like a big nap. <laughs> and even then we're in the presence of God, so it's great. It's a great nap. You know, I, I'm not, we can't be afraid of death because Jesus is our Savior through death. Jesus is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over all the forces of darkness and sin and evil that the world can throw at us. He's sovereign over sickness and disease and hurts and wounds and brokenness. He's even sovereign over death itself. He's the Lord of all. And if those four stories do not inspire your confidence in Christ, then let me just close by reminding you of one other story of His power. And that is the story of Christ on the cross. 
Because on the cross, Jesus demonstrated the ultimate manifestation of His power. You thought He was powerful when He could command those things. What about the cross? Because Jesus, here's what He did. Jesus says, I'm going to take it up a notch. On the cross, I'm not just going to command the forces of chaos. I'm going to allow myself to be consumed by the forces of chaos. I'm going to surrender myself to all those things and still have the victory. You know, it's one thing just to beat it. It's another thing to say, okay, fine, do your worst. Whatever you got, hell and death and Satan and disease, do your worst and I'll still win. And so Christ surrendered Himself on the cross. The forces of nature rose up against Him. Do you remember the sky turned black and the earth shook? Signs of Old Testament judgment. That's common imagery for judgment in the Old Testament. And so nature was rising up to condemn Him and judge Him. And Satan was there dancing around His throne. That's what Jesus said. This is your hour when darkness reigns. The devils were frolicking and screaming around Christ's cross, just mocking Him and insulting Him. And the bleeding, not someone else's bleeding, but He took it on Himself. And His skin was torn from Him and He bled for us. And finally, and I don't understand how this is, it's such a mystery, such a a great paradox, that somehow the Lord of life allowed His physical life to be snuffed out. That the icy hand of death touched Him. So He was completely consumed by the tsunami of chaos. Everything this world could muster to throw at a man, threw it at Christ. He was consumed. Then they put His body in the grave, put a big stone in front of it, sealed it, put a guard in front of it, and all that was like the exclamation point at the end of the sentence. He's dead. <laughs> He's dead. That was Friday. But on Sunday, the stone was rolled back. The guards ran like little girls for their lives. The light burst forth, and Christ is risen. And so we worship a risen Christ. And so when I say to you, trust Christ, this is not just a crutch. This is not some uh, psychological sleight of hand that we tell ourselves to sort of pump ourselves up to get through life. Christianity is not a coping mechanism. It is truth of Christ's reality crushing into my reality and me being transformed by the presence of Christ. Jesus is alive and He's real. So when we're trusting Christ, we're not trusting an idea or a feeling. We are trusting the living Lord who was crucified, raised, and is coming again. And so faith is something real and solid. It is not an empty, hopeful, wishful thing. It is a solid thing. Faith is the most solid thing. And it is through faith that we are saved. So have your faith in Christ, wherever you are. If you're not a Christian, put your faith in Christ and come to Christ. If you are a Christian, keep trusting Jesus as He continues to work His shalom in your life. Put your faith in Him. As John Calvin, the great theologian, said, faith is not a distant view. It's not a distant view. But instead, it's a warm embrace of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we embrace You. We wrap the arms of our spirit around You. We press through the crowd to touch You. We fall at Your feet and beg You. We love You, Jesus, because You are the Sovereign Lord. You are risen. I thank You, Jesus, that You are more real than we are in a sense. That You are even here in this room right now through the power of Your Holy Spirit. For anyone who would reach out with their faith and touch You, You are here. 
Lord, we do pray for healing. We pray that you would heal people in our church. We know, Lord, yes, you are sovereign, but God, we know our task is to pray. So, Lord, make us a people who pray more fervently for emotional and physical restoration. Not for our own benefit, but ultimately for your glory. Lord, we pray that you would make us a people who were fearless in the face of life's storms. That you would make us a people who would continue to pursue those who seem hopelessly lost. To continue praying for them, God, and hoping that you can do something. Lord, we pray that we'd be a people who wouldn't fear death. And that when we lose loved ones in the Lord, we would not grieve as the world grieves. Because we know that for us, it is ultimately, Lord, uh, temporary. The death for us Christians is merely a kind of sleep that we will be awoken in the resurrection day. And so, Lord Jesus, our hope is in you completely. Help us to trust you more. In Christ alone, our hope is found. We pray this in his name. Amen. You'll find the words to In Christ Alone on the back side of your order of worship. And would you?